Well, good evening. Uh, welcome to church again. Let me add my welcome to Sarah's. Uh, we're looking through uh, this section of Luke, as you know, as we've been working through these last few weeks. And uh, we come to another very well-known section. I think all of Luke 8 is a section that people have heard, uh, these miraculous events. Um, Jesus is involved with uh, various people throughout this section. But I think there's a lot to reflect on as we think about its application for ourselves today as we respond um, to Christ in the way that we see these people respond to him tonight. So let me uh, pray for us and ask that God will help us as we come to this section, uh, that he will give us insight and help us to uh, respond rightly to him. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can gather here this evening. Uh, we thank you for the freedom to do so. We thank you for the freedom to open up your word and consider it together and respond to it. And we do pray that you might help us again, that your spirit would be at work uh, to challenge us, to correct us, to encourage us, help us to uh, not only hear your word, but have minds that understand, wills that are ready to respond in obedience. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, fears, they can overwhelm us, can't they, at times? Uh, we might be confronted with a dangerous animal, perhaps a snake. We might find ourselves underground in a very confined space. We might find ourselves at a great height, and suddenly we're overcome with fear. We're immobilized, our heart races, we start to struggle to think straight. Or we could be stranded with no way of escape. We might be in floodwaters, as I've been in one occasion, or we might be hemmed in by a bushfire, and suddenly we feel this fight-or-flight response coming up within us. Uh, we might be about to speak in front of a huge crowd of people, and we find that our palms are clammy and that we're sweating, and that we're really fearful of being in this situation. We could be facing an exam where we're worried that you know, our whole life hangs on this moment and if I don't go well on this day, then you know, things are just not going to go from here. And we start being overwhelmed by the situation. We can even be fearful of moral failure or potentially it being known by many people, of others being aware of some struggle that we're having and that can paralyze us. We could be paralysed going to the doctor and getting some unwelcome news. Some test has been done and the results are bad and then our mind starts racing about what happens next. What's going to happen? Things seem out of control. We can be happily working one week and then made redundant the next and suddenly all of life seems pear-shaped. How am I going to pay my bills, pay the rent? What's going to happen next? And fear overcomes us. Or perhaps it's a loved one, somebody close to us is suddenly diagnosed with an illness. Perhaps it's life-threatening, they're diagnosed with cancer. It's terminal. And suddenly our world seems to close in on us. And I think that last scenario is often one of the scariest, where we face mortality, whether a loved one or our own. And we can be overcome in those situations. Samuel Johnson, who was arguably the most distinguished English writer ever, he was an 18th century guy, he was a poet, essayist, he wrote the prelude to what is now the Oxford English Dictionary that everybody goes by, but he was somebody that was overcome at one point when a close friend of his uh, was dying. He said this, at the sight of this last conflict, I felt a sensation never known to me before, a confusion of emotions. An awful stillness of sorrow, a gloomy terror without name. 
You see, as we come to our passage this evening in Luke 8, we find two very different people. But they've got two equally paralyzing fears that they're facing. And the account of their struggles that we read through this section is not airbrushed in any way. It's not made out to be better than it is. Rather, we get their desperation in all its starkness. We see them facing it with great difficulty. And yet in the midst of that, there's this willingness to seek out Jesus. And I think the big question that our passage tonight raises is this. Why is faith in Jesus necessary? Why is faith in Jesus necessary? I think as we'll see as we go through this passage, there's at least two good answers that flow out of this section as we explore that. And the first answer is this. Faith in Jesus is necessary because it drives out fear. Because it drives out fear. Notice again what Luke records from verses 40 to 42. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. And then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. If you can cast your mind back two weeks ago, we were looking through the previous section in Luke 8, and we saw Jesus had been crossing the Lake of Galilee. It's that famous section where he's on the boat, and a huge storm comes up. His disciples are freaking out, and then Jesus um, is woken up by them, calms the storm. And then they land on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, and immediately they're confronted with this demon-possessed man. The demon is cast out. Indeed, a whole legion of demons is cast out of this man. He's in his right mind. And then following all of that, they sail back across from the eastern side back to the Jewish western side of the Lake of Galilee, to the area of Capernaum where Jesus was living at this point with Peter's family. And they get back there and there's a huge crowd waiting to see them. There's nothing surprising about that. Crowds have been following Jesus for some time at this point in Luke's gospel. And they know that he's gone across the lake and the only way is that he'll be back at some point soon. And so he arrives back and there's a huge crowd to greet them. None of that's shocking, but what happens in verses 41 and 42 is shocking. Because if you look again at that section, we suddenly see this remarkable scene. Jairus, who is a community leader, he's the synagogue ruler, no less. And here he is, somebody who is, you know, like citizen number one in the region. And he comes and throws himself in the dirt before Jesus, this prophet from Nazareth. Massive crowd watching this. In the midst of this huge crowd that's greeted, Jairus comes and just begs before Jesus, pleading him to come and help him. His daughter is dying. I don't know, it would be like the mayor of Wollongong doing this, or the mayor in any town in Australia. Think of the most prominent person in the region. And they come and throw themselves down at the feet of Jesus in front of everybody. People will be talking about this for a long time to come. But there's something more about this situation, isn't it? And that's because all the Jewish religious leaders had rejected Jesus. We've seen several incidents this far in Luke's gospel where, you know, Jesus, despite the miracles, despite his amazing teaching, he is just not granted an audience by the religious leaders. They're threatened by him. They don't want to know about what Jesus is doing. They're rejecting him outright. And here is a guy who's the head of the synagogue, who is the community leader, one of those religious leaders, and he is going and begging before Jesus. And Jairus would have been all too well of that, aware of that situation. It's a very awkward moment for him, and he's doing it in front of a huge crowd of people, observing, scrutinizing what he's doing at this point. 
Well, we know this kind of situation's hard. We see it in movies over and over and over where, you know, there's the guy that's hanging by a fingertip from a cliff face or from the top of some skyscraper and there's the noble hero reaching down to save the person but his pride won't allow him to be helped. He'd rather fall to his death than reach out and be helped by this other one. And so he ignores in his pride, lets go, or whatever it might be. But here for Jairus, he's such an unlikely example of somebody that lets go, sets aside his pride, and then reaches out for Jesus' help. Indeed, he has come with many others to get to Christ amongst this huge crowd. What would overcome pride in a man like this, who is a leader in the region, probably one of the richest people in the region, to come and beg before Jesus, this prophet who all the other religious leaders are rejecting? Surely the only thing that will overcome such pride is fear. This man is desperate. His daughter's dying. He doesn't care about public embarrassment. He doesn't care what others have said. He's going to come because he thinks Jesus is a last-ditch effort. Maybe he can do something. And so he comes. He not only goes openly to Jesus in this huge crowd, but he pleads. Will you think about it for a second? I've been thinking about this all week. I have one daughter, she's age 12, and I've tried to think through as i prepared this talk, what would it be like for me to lose her? And even just trying to theorise that is agonising. You know, she brings so much life and energy to our family, we love her so much, it would be heartbreaking, it really would. And so I think I can feel something of the desperation of this man as he comes. Everything else is set aside. He's there because he thinks Jesus can help save his daughter. And no doubt there's this huge wave of relief that comes over him when perhaps expecting that Jesus is not going to be interested, he immediately agrees to go with him to his house. Sure, I'll come with you. But no sooner has hope been rising in this man than suddenly everything's put on hold because we get to verse 43 and there's this interruption almost as they're about to leave. They're stopped in their tracks. Our attention's taken away from Jairus. There's another incident that's unfolding right then and there. Have a look again from verse 43 to 47. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him, that is Jesus, and touched the edge of his cloak and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. It's a pregnant pause. And then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. Second person lying in the dust before Jesus in the space of a minute. She told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. So the journey to the dying daughter is delayed by a woman whose name we aren't even given whose low social status and poverty was in such stark contrast to Jairus. You couldn't think of two diametrically opposed people in Capernaum than these two. I mean, Jairus, he's the leader of the community. He's the synagogue ruler. He would be a rich man. 
He comes publicly to see Jesus, even though it's going to be embarrassing. This woman won't even do that. She's anonymously trying to sneak up and touch him and disappear quickly before anybody notices. Gladly disappear into the crowd. Here is a woman who has lost all her money to doctors who are unable to improve her condition. We know that because we read it in Mark's parallel account. In fact, Mark says that she spent all her money and instead of getting even any slightest help, her condition got worse. And so she's lost everything she had, 12 years of misery. But in verse 44, we read that this suffering ends in an instant. Her healing is immediate. It's just complete as soon as she touches even the edge of his cloak. Well, I've alluded to some of the contrast already between these two people. But just imagine it. I mean, Jairus, you know, maybe he's there with his, you know, mayor-type robes and uh, outlook, as we might imagine it today, the most important person in the room. And he's stopped in his tracks. They can't go when he's daughter is dying because jesus is going to give attention have compassion on this woman just as much as jesus was having compassion upon him but who is she her health condition her poverty would have meant that she was a social outcast you know her bleeding was socially devastating because it would make her ritually unclean in the jewish community she would not be allowed to go to the synagogue let alone the temple down in jerusalem See, in Leviticus 12, 15, she is somebody that would live in a perpetual state of ceremonial impurity. She would have to keep her distance from everyone. She could not participate in the community. In fact, as she sneaks through the crowd to Jesus, pressing in around her, then she would be rendering all those people impure because she touched them. And her aim to touch Jesus so that she might be healed is a premeditated act that would make him ritually unclean as well but setting aside all those barriers those concerns she goes but surely she goes with great fear and she's already an outcast excluded what if this goes wrong i mean surely she's fearful of further shame further exclusion from her own people And yet, as diametrically opposed as they are, there's some great similarities here, isn't there? These two people are equally desperate. Equally desperate. I mean, Jairus is seeking a life and death intervention for his only daughter. She's 12. Here's a woman seeking an end to social outcasts and her poverty and misery of 12 years. Jesus is going to attend to both of them. Both are crossing religious and social barriers in order to interact with Jesus, to seek his help. I mean, this woman is risking further rejection of the crowds. She's um, risking rejection from the synagogue ruler, the synagogue that she might like to go back to and be part of. And here she is stopping that man's daughter from being attended to so that she might be healed. But she acts, she acts with resolve. She crosses those barriers to gain access to divine power and so does Jairus. And in the end, you see both of them overcome their fear. They overcome their fear by falling before Jesus. 
They come to the one person that can resolve it. Well, how do we apply all this to ourselves today? How do we think about such issues in our day and age? We may find it, find it hard to relate to these two individuals. Well, let me put it to you this way. Are you willing to overcome any obstacle, any obstacle to seek Christ's help, to seek Christ's leading in your life? Or would you only do that if the cost was small enough? See, perhaps you're a believer here who's faced lots of difficult, difficult situations. Perhaps you're facing one right now. And maybe you find it really hard to pray about that situation, to seek Jesus' help in that way. You think, well, I should be praying, but you know, I can't bring myself to do so. Or I think, look, why would God help me? Or... But maybe you can pray. You realize that's your one source of help. And so you're praying, but you can't share that with anyone else, such as the shame or your concern, or you feel that they will look down on you, that you'll be judged or shamed in some way, even though many others who are friends of yours might pray with you, might stand with you, might help you in practical ways, but you cannot reach out for any help, and so you fight it alone. No, I'm just going to do this privately with God. I'm not going to receive any help from anyone else. I think so often we want Jesus to deal with things privately for us. We want to be like the woman who's going to sneak up and sneak out, problem solved. What does Jesus do for her in this situation? Well, we might think on surface reading that he embarrasses her, that he just makes this most difficult of moments far more difficult because he announces it to the whole community. And she's forced to go trembling on bended knee and explain herself and her story to everybody that's there. Surely she wanted to dig a hole and just have the earth swallow her. But no, Jesus is doing something really helpful. She told her story in front of the crowd, but it was a cathartic process. Jesus was ensuring something here. She had the healing, but there were some other issues in play. She's somebody that's been socially excluded. How is she going to be included again? Only if everybody knows without a doubt that this woman who they would all know is suffering is seen to be healed. And Jesus, through this process of her sharing the story, everybody knows that she is now ready to be included back in the community. Jesus thinks pastorally about the person. There's a holistic picture here for this woman. She's received back. And we're told that she goes away in peace. Short phrase, but that means a lot to that woman in this situation. She goes away in peace for the first time in 12 years. Faith in Jesus helps us overcome our fears. But Jesus calls us to step out in faith that he might help us. I don't know, do you like it stepping out in the face of your fears? I think I've shared before, I don't mind heights. I like really tall roller coasters. I don't mind tall buildings as well for the same reason. I've been to the Petronas Towers in Kuala Lumpur, the more prosaic Centerpoint Tower in Sydney, the bridge climb. The Eiffel Tower in Paris is slightly better. 
Um, but, you know, I was really interested as a result when uh, this step into the void, if you've heard about it, opened in December of 2013. Magnificent. This glass cube on the side of this mountain peak in the French Alps, offering a breathtaking view one kilometre straight down, thousand metres straight down to the rocks below. Standing on glass, it looks like you're holding in thin air. There's three layers of tempered glass fixed with metal to this big support structure. How good is that? (laughs) I want to go there. Uh, perhaps you think, look, I don't want to step out in that cube. I, you know, I don't like heights as it is, and that is just the worst. I don't care how many people have stepped out into that thing. I don't trust that box. I'm never going there. Well, if you're going to enjoy the view, you have to step out into it. There's an element of faith. It isn't what that, that's what God calls us to do all the time if we're to follow his son. You know, whenever the authority of Jesus is highlighted through Luke's gospel, so is discipleship. Uh, for Luke, you see, the revelation of Jesus as God's authoritative son should lead to genuine faith that will drive out fear. Fears are set aside when we're following Jesus because, well, he's in charge of everything. How can I not follow him? Now, so often our world today wants to tell us that the real threat to faith, the real threat to your faith or to anyone else coming to trust in Jesus is knowledge. Unless I've got all the answers to every question, I'm not going to trust in Jesus. You can't ask me to you know, take out insurance unless I know all the fine print. And so if I'm going to trust my life to this one Jesus, I need to know everything. So I need to know every answer. You need to tell me exactly what's going to happen when I die, what heaven will look like. You know, you can't leave anything else or else I'm not going to trust in Jesus. Nonsense. God has given us in his word more than we will ever need to trust his son. The issue at that point for many Australians in this sort of atheistic mindset is not knowledge at all. The issue is fear. The issue is fear because we're not willing to give over our life to someone else. We like being in charge. We think we're on the throne. We're in control that we can do this. I don't need anybody else's help. And so I throw up smoke screens. I don't know enough. I've got this question. You can't answer it. But I'm fearful of letting go of the reins of my life. That's the problem. And so I'm driven by my fear. I want to hang on as if hanging on to those reins will do anything. Look, the real threat to faith doesn't come from lack of knowledge, I want to argue. It comes from fear. We need to act on what we know. And if you're here tonight, I'd say you already know enough not to give way to fears, not to think that Jesus can't take care of you. He's holding the whole world, as it were, in the palm of his hand. He can look after your life. He can look after mine. And it brings us to a second answer to this question of faith. Why is faith in, necess- in Jesus necessary? Well, one, it drives out fear. But two, it brings salvation. It brings life. It brings salvation to those who trust him. Notice again, Luke records from verse 48, the end of this encounter with the woman. And then he said to her, that is Jesus, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. 
hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid, just believe, and she shall be healed. Well, here's the finale to this interlude with the woman, and it draws our attention again to this necessary response of humans to Jesus, that is to place our faith in him. Here is the one who demonstrates all authority. He's calmed the storm already, he's healed the demoniac, he's now brought 12 years of sickness to an end, and he's about to go and raise Jairus' daughter to life. And so we had to respond in trust to him. Maybe this woman, as she came, feared that not just the rejection of the crowds, but the rejection of Jesus. What if he doesn't have compassion? What if he doesn't want to help her? Is he just going to embarrass her in front of the people? But her honest description of her desperation evokes compassion. Of course it evokes compassion from Jesus. So much compassion that he doesn't want her to go away with the wrong idea about what has just happened. Not only does he want to include her back in the community, but he wants her to understand what has brought the healing. Is she going to go away thinking, well, it's just his clothing. If I could rip off a piece of the cloak, I'll be right for the rest of my life. No, he wants her to see that it is her faith, her conviction about him that has led to this healing. She has desperately come against all odds through the crowd to touch him because she trusts that Jesus is all-powerful. Faith has healed you. It's about faith. And so he doesn't allow her to go away. And he explains to her what has unfolded And by doing that, encourages her to think about the bigger picture. He's brought restoration, but he's bringing more than physical restoration here. Uh, The Greek word that's healed here, and again, later in this gospel, even in the story with Jairus, is the word sozo is the root of it, and it can either be translated healed or saved. It just depends on the context as to how you write the English word. But I think Luke is deliberately using this word so that we might understand it both ways here. Yes, she has been physically healed, but she has also received salvation, not just uh, social inclusion, but she has learnt that Jesus, through this episode, is all-powerful, that he can be trusted. That day she was saved. And it's an important point for us to grasp as we think about it. Jesus doesn't simply offer physical help. He offers the incredible spiritual help us that have created this barrier this divide of the holy god because we've wanted to go our own way and do things in our own strength and as a result the bible describes us as enemies of god whether we see ourselves that way or not we can be shaking our fist in god's face and we're so angry or we can just be ignoring christ Either way, we're categorized as those who are enemies, who are out of step with God, who designed us to be in relationship with him. And what we see here is that the war can end in an instant. We don't need to be enemies with God, but through his son who paid the price for us, we can be his friends, indeed his children. And the result is that we can have peace, not just with other people, but peace with God. And that's why when he says, go in peace, At the end of that short statement to her, there is a lot packed in that statement. She's going in peace with God, and we can too, if we accept Christ's rule. Look, maybe tonight here you're not sure where you stand with Jesus. I want to encourage you to consider 
that he's asking you to respond to him as the one that can grant you life, eternal life, that gives you peace with God, your maker. Only he can. Well, I don't know about you, but at this point, if I was Jairus, I'd be pretty upset. Um, he's citizen number one, and this has been a long delay. I mean, we've been focusing on the woman now and her story, and so he must be tapping his foot or doing something by this point, looking at his watch, um, saying, Jesus, when are we going to my house? And finally, in verse 49, suddenly there's a servant that appears from his house. They're just about to leave. He's still chatting with the woman, and this servant arrives and says the very words that he must have been dreading for days. Your daughter is dead. And to add insult to injury, the servant must be one of his servants that's been sent. Maybe he won't be for much longer. Adds, don't bother the teacher anymore. There's nothing that can be done now. She's dead. So forget it. Don't waste Jesus' time. He's probably got other things to do, other people to heal. Let's move on. Well, at that moment, Jairus as well must be crumbling. But Jesus knows it and he speaks directly to that, doesn't he? looks at Jairus and says, don't be afraid, just believe. She will be healed. Again, there's this contrast, isn't there, between fear and faith in Jesus. Again, the word healed there is the same word that could be saved. She can be saved. Yes, she can, because of the one who speaks that word. And so they, get, they head off. Who knows what Jairus is thinking at this point? Maybe he's agreeing with the servant, thinking, well, it's all too late. What can Jesus do now? We're going to the house, but who knows what's going to happen when I get there. And they arrive at the house, and of course, the funeral procession, as it were, has already started. People are wailing and mourning outside the front door. It's not very encouraging for the father that's returning home. The mother is there at the home. Jesus takes them up to the room and he takes just three disciples with him, the inner circle of Peter, James and John. They're the only ones that are going to witness what will be an incredible moment, incredible miracle. And so they go into the room and Jesus takes her by the hand and simply with the word, get up or arise, she is brought back to life. And they are stunned. Of course they're stunned. We're told that the parents are astonished. That tells you something of the mindset perhaps of Jairus as he walked back. He's not expecting this to happen. He is dumbfounded that Christ can just speak and his daughter is alive again. Everybody knows she's dead. Jesus has said on the way here, no, it's all right. She's just asleep. I'm going to wake her. The crowd have mocked and ridiculed such a suggestion. They know she's dead. Jairus and his wife know she's dead. Jesus enters. Have a look again at the effect of his words. Verse 55. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told him to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. Well, I mean, there's this huge commotion going on outside. They're crying and wailing inside Jesus, who has resurrection life as the eternal son of God, has raised the child to dead from the dead. The, the parents are astonished. They're welcoming back their child. Meanwhile, the people outside are crying. It's an incredible juxtaposition here. Jesus had been ridiculed on the way in, and yet he has performed exactly what he said he would. With a word, she's been brought back to life. And you notice this 
um, divide spirit body. We get it in the very creation in Genesis 2. God breathes life or breathes his spirit into the human body. Notice her spirit returned. A lifeless body, but a spirit returns. New life again. There before them. Restoration. And it's just this wonderful picture of the resurrection life that is to come. Something that will only fully break in when Christ returns at his second coming. But this is what is awaited for those who trust in him in the future. Here is Jesus, the one with life who can give it eternal life. And given the crowd that's present outside, it does seem odd, though, that he says to the parents not to tell anyone. I mean, it's one of those secrets you can't really keep. I guess as soon as she opens the front door, it's kind of out there that she's alive again. But why the difference here? I mean, Jairus had gone publicly, throws himself before Jesus, and then the healing is private and there's only a small group. The woman has gone privately hoping no one will notice her and then Jesus makes this huge thing out of it and everybody in town knows about what has happened. Why the reverse in each case? Well, I guess we've explained what happened in the woman's case. She needs to be included. Jesus has got a more holistic uh, understanding of the situation so there's social inclusion through the way he does things before everyone. There's also the explanation about how the healing has taken place. But in the case of Jairus' daughter... The crowd represents those who are rejecting Christ. It's not clear, perhaps, as we read it in English, but there's really a mocking, a ridiculing of Christ coming and suggesting that he can raise this child. <laughs> sure. But he does. And so they're left outside. They don't get to witness the miracle. But the parents who have been told to not fear but just believe, they see it. The disciples, why three disciples? Well, probably it's a small room, but the disciples need to be there so that they can testify to the truth that Jesus is the Christ. It's only in the next chapter, in chapter 9 of Luke, in verse 20, that Jesus is going to say to them, Who am I? And Peter's going to answer, Well, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. I mean, he doesn't need any more proof after Luke 8. He's calmed the storm, healed the demoniac, healed the woman after 12 years, raised the child from the dead. He's got to be the Christ. And so they're witnesses of Jesus and all his power and his authority. Well, how does this situation apply to us? How can we think about faith and salvation as we sit here today, 2,000 years later? You know, perhaps you have had to overcome lots of barriers to come to faith in Jesus. And maybe you've come from a country where it's very difficult to trust in Christ without extreme persecution. Maybe it's difficult to even get hold of a Bible, let alone own your faith in Jesus publicly. Maybe you've even grown up in this country and found it almost the same. You've had a family that's very anti-Christian and didn't want you to make any decision that's ridiculed and mocked you for any slightest interest that you've shown. And you've had to overcome their disapproval, their rejection of you. Perhaps you've had to overcome your own intellectual barriers because you've gone through a high school and then through university that's told you over and over, you can only believe what you can see, what you can prove scientifically. So you can't believe in this Jesus guy. How can he possibly do these things? It breaks the law of science. It's fairy tales. How can you have faith in such a thing? It's blind faith. Well... Seeking out Christ's help, help often comes at a cost, doesn't it? It can be a social cost. 
in some cases a real physical cost attached. But this is a quest that you don't give up on. Don't give up on a quest to find out the truth about the one that's offering life eternal, that has such power over all things, over the spiritual realm, over sickness, over death itself, our greatest enemy. I mean, this is a quest that you'll go through any barrier to be sure about. You need to know where you stand with Christ. It's not like he's offering a matching set of steak knives or something trivial on the latest infotainment album or um, channel. This is too big a question just to leave to the side. And I've got to say, there have been countless people before ourselves in this generation that have gone to great lengths to get to the bottom of this question because they needed to know. 1831, Adoniram Judson is in Burma. He's been in Burma for 18 years. 18 years he hasn't seen a soul come to faith in the Lord Jesus. As he was about to land there, he'd gone via India and he dropped in on William Carey, the famous father of modern missions, who was doing stuff in India with a team of people already. And Carey and his team tried to discourage Adoniram Judson, who'd come from America. They said, don't go to Burma. There's no one down there. There's no support. There's malaria there. You're just going to die. Stay here with us and help us in India. Don't go to Burma. Judson said, I'm going to Burma. And 18 years later, he must have been thinking, well, maybe Kerry's right. I'm, I'm wasting my time. Nobody is responding to the gospel. By that point, his first wife had died. His second wife was unwell. He'd lost three children. And then he wrote this. It's spreading everywhere through the whole length and breadth of the land. I believe we have had 6,000 visits to our house. Some come two or three months journey from the borders of Siam and China. Others from 100 miles to the north. They say, sir, we have seen this writing that tells us about an eternal God. Are you the man that gives away such writings? If so, give us those because we want to know the truth before we die. Well, there's a quest. Please, let me plead with you tonight. If you don't know where you stand with Jesus, don't give up on that quest. Keep searching for the truth. Keep reading his words, his biography to us, that you might assess for yourself whether this is the person that you will stake your life on. Don't give up. It doesn't matter what the barriers are. Think about the woman and what she went through to get to Jesus. Think about Jairus and his position and what he did to come to Jesus. Trust the one who can bring life. And if you already know Jesus as your Lord and Savior here tonight, then the question is, are you continuing in repentance and faith? Are you continuing to walk with him as Lord over your life, knowing that he really is in control? Or are you doubting his rule over your life? Are you shrinking back into fear as you feel like, I can't follow him, I can't be sure? See, genuine faith in Jesus, who has paid for our sin on the cross, will bring forgiveness and a fresh start and a new life, but it will also lead to us willingly, wholeheartedly following him, come what may, submitting our lives to him, because we're convinced that there is no one else in charge. Who can save us for eternity but him?
which other way is there to the Father in heaven? What does anybody else offer beyond the trinkets of this life and how to enjoy 70 years and then what? Why is faith in Jesus necessary? Because it's the only thing that will drive out fear. Maybe you're worrying right now, I don't know what's going to happen the rest of this year. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get a job next year. I don't know if I'm going to keep the job that I'm in. I'm worried about the breakdown of this relationship. Things are not how I can do it. Yeah, well, we're finite, weak human beings, you and I. And we can't do it in our own strength. And without Jesus, there is going to be a lot of fear. But with him, with him, the whole outlook is different. Jesus, the one who is in command, who calms the storm, who raises the dead, he says, follow me. Follow me now. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Christ we have one who has conquered all. And therefore we've got nothing to fear. As Jesus himself said, there is no point fearing other people for what can they do. But we are to fear you, our maker, to understand our need of a saviour. Indeed, coming to one who has conquered all and therefore removes our fears. And not that we won't face struggles in this life. No doubt there'll be worries at different points, but we should never be overwhelmed if we've placed our trust in the one who is in control. Lord, help us to see that if we're in Jesus already. And for those who are yet to make that step, Lord, we pray that you might grant them clarity to see your love for us, your great compassion, just as Christ so showed such wonderful compassion to Jairus and to the woman. Lord, help us to respond in faith. If we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm.